Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and this is the place to find beautiful and broken companions for your everyday pilgrimage. This special episode brings you the stories of four saints of Atlanta, saints who were sinners too, people who lived faithfully in their own time and place. The names Thomas O'Reilly, Demetrius Petridis, Alberta King, and Lila Denmark may be familiar or unknown, but because of their vibrant, embodied witness, the city of Atlanta was changed forever. More than 4 million people now live across metro Atlanta, a land that has been inhabited by people for more than 4,000 years. This red clay earth was once home to Cherokee and Muscogee Creek people. The city of Atlanta was first known in 1837 as Terminus. As the junction of four railroad lines, Atlanta became a center of Southern war industries and Confederate rail transportation after the Civil War began in 1861. 10,000 people lived there, one-fifth of whom were enslaved. This is where we meet our first saint of Atlanta. I'll note here that I use the word saint generously and hope you Catholic and Orthodox friends will indulge me. Growing up in Atlanta as the preacher's daughter at North Avenue Presbyterian and then marrying the preacher's son at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist, I'm coming late to the saints. So, our first saint is Thomas O'Reilly, an Irishman born in 1831, the newly arrived pastor of the Atlanta Catholic Church. His parishioners no doubt still felt the chilling effects of Jane Oglethorpe's founding charter, which denied Catholics the right to worship in the Georgia colony. But it was the Civil War that would shape O'Reilly's ministry. Father Thomas O'Reilly was described as a highly educated gentleman and a Christian in every sense of the word when he was appointed chaplain to the Confederate troops. Throughout the war, Thomas gave aid both in the field and in makeshift hospitals to soldiers on both sides of the conflict. He ministered to everyone, heard confessions, celebrated mass, answered letters, and performed last rites for both Union and Confederate soldiers. Then, in 1864, the city fell to General Sherman's invading Union army. In a story that's been told and retold, Sherman ordered all citizens to leave the city as his intention was to burn Atlanta to the ground. Father O'Reilly protested, saying that burning homes and churches and killing civilians was unreasonable, unfair, and unjust. Word on the street was that Sherman planned to arrest him, even execute him, but feared a public outcry over the killing of a priest. In spite of those dangers, 
Father O'Reilly continued to appeal to Sherman, but was ignored. Then the priest sent word declaring that he would excommunicate any Catholics who participated in the destruction of his Catholic Church. Sherman would face massive desertions of the Catholics in the federal ranks. A majority of his forces on this campaign were Catholic, and many already personally knew Father O'Reilly. Sherman knew when he was beat. As Atlanta went up in flames, federal soldiers were posted to guard the Catholic Church and five Protestant churches, as well as the courthouse, city hall, and up to 400 homes. After the siege of Atlanta, a Confederate general reported this. The city hall is damaged but not burned. The Second Baptist, Central Presbyterian, Trinity, and Catholic churches, and all the residences adjacent are safe, all attributable to Father O'Reilly who refused to give up his parsonage to Yankee officers who were looking out for fine houses for quarters, and there being a large number of Catholics in the Yankee army who volunteered to protect their church and parsonage would not allow any houses adjacent to be fired that would endanger them. As proof of their attachment to their church and love for Father O'Reilly, so to Father O'Reilly the country is indebted for these protections. When citizens of Atlanta returned, the spared churches became places of refuge to temporarily house these homeless returnees. Thomas O'Reilly paid a personal price for his actions as a mediator in wartime, the price of destroyed health. He died in 1872 at the age of only 41. In the final decade of the 1800s, a very small number of Greek immigrants to Atlanta came alone to earn the money to provide for the needs of their families back home, all with hopes of returning to Greece. In 1900, Atlanta was a city strictly segregated under Jim Crow laws. About 40% of Atlantans were African American, a large number of whom had been enslaved only a generation before. Atlanta's reception of the Greeks was not a welcoming one. The Greeks' origins in southern Europe counted against them. And in a city that was hungry for immigrant labor, for farms and factories, the Greek immigrants were entrepreneurs, living and establishing fruit stands along downtown sidewalks, which Sherman had left in devastation not long before. As has been true for immigrants throughout America's history, connections to home, community, and cultural identity were lifelines for these men. For the Atlanta Greeks, community wasn't truly community without a Greek Orthodox church. And so, in 1905, a Greek Orthodox church was established, a sacred space for worship and sacrament as well as a keystone of education, economy, culture, and connection. It's a congregation that thrives today. 
1912, there were newspaper reports of a daring Greek priest coming to Atlanta, a man described as the stormy petrel of the cloth, famous for his lambasting of the rich Greeks who loved money for the sake of power. This man was Father Demetrius Patrides. Born on the Greek island of Samos in the mid-1860s, Demetrius was a married priest with children, but his wife had died before he came to America. He'd been sent by the Church of Greece to Philadelphia, which is where he'd made his reputation as a person of high principles and forthrightness. He would need all of his strength, for he arrived in Atlanta just as many men returned to Greece to fight in the Balkan Wars, leaving the church in dire straits. He would suffer financial hardships alongside his people, even accepting a pay cut, saying, When my flock is suffering, I gladly accept to suffer with them. Patrides traveled throughout the region, ministering to the Orthodox Christians who didn't have a priest. He taught without pay when the church founded a school. When the Ku Klux Klan was formed in 1915, Greeks were among the victims of their white supremacist hatred. Still, Father Demetrius carried on, serving and advocating for his people. Father Demetrius was not simply focused on his fellow Greeks. He was a leader in national inter-Christian dialogue with Episcopalians and Orthodox believers of different ethnicities. Back in Philadelphia, he had befriended Raphael Morgan, a young man from Jamaica, a man who had lived in Patrides' home and was sent with his support to Constantinople, where he was ordained, the first black Orthodox priest in the United States. But life was tough for Father Demetrius, far from the Mediterranean island of his birth. To a small Greek community in Pennsylvania, he writes, I will come to celebrate the liturgy with you brave young men from our unforgettable homeland of Greece, because when I am with you, I forget my old age and the bitterness of the harsh living abroad. You hear his suffering at the death of his son across the ocean in this letter. My dear John, my warmest thanks to you for your participation in our mourning and for your condolences upon the death of my beloved boy, my George, my brave one. Ah, it is impossible to describe on this lifeless piece of paper the pain in my heart. I was not able to save him. I made every effort, much surpassing my strength. My God, what torture it is. My eyes were changed into oceans, and my tears had no end. But even going through this, blessings in the name of the Lord, I am aware of your love. Yet, in a final Easter homily before his death from diabetes, before the days of insulin, in 1917, he preached these words. After the heavy and icy cold winter, behold, the sweet and delightful spring has come. After the stormy seas, calmness has followed. After the fearful passion and painful death of our Savior, his glorious and joyous resurrection from the dead dawned upon us again. Death was not 
his end. In the year 1912, when Demetrius Petridis arrived in Atlanta, an eight-year-old girl was growing up in the sweet Auburn neighborhood. Her parents were Jenny Williams and Reverend Adam Daniel Williams, the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. The little girl's name was Alberta. Alberta attended high school at Spelman Baptist Seminary, now Spelman College. She went away to study at Hamden University in Virginia. Upon her return in 1924, the 20-year-old trained teacher and musician immediately announced her engagement during a Sunday service at Ebenezer to a young pastor with the last name of King. Because the local school board's regulations stated that married women couldn't teach, Alberta turned her considerable talents back into her community and her family and her church, where she led the church's first choir. Alberta used her skills to tutor her husband through college, guide her children on their own educational journeys, and teach hundreds of instrumentalists and singers over the next 49 years. As the mother of three children, King continued her studies at Morris Brown College, where she received her B.A. in 1938. She was active in numerous civic and religious organizations, including the YWCA and the Women's International League for Peace and Justice. We know that her husband, Martin Luther King, succeeded her father as pastor of Ebenezer Church, and in time, her son would join him in the pulpit. But there's so much we don't know about Alberta Williams King. We find her in the words of her famous son, Martin Luther King Jr. He often spoke of the positive influence she had on his moral and spiritual development. He said, My mother, Alberta Williams King, was behind the scenes setting forth those motherly cares, the lack of which leaves a missing link in life. In an essay he wrote as a seminary student, young Martin writes this. Our parents themselves were very intimate, and they always maintained an intimate relationship with us. It is quite easy for me to think of a God of love, mainly because I grew up in a family where love was central and where lovely relationships were ever-present. It is quite easy for me to think of the universe as basically friendly, mainly because of my uplifting hereditary and environmental circumstances. It is quite easy for me to lean more toward optimism than pessimism about human nature, mainly because of my childhood experiences. At present, I still feel the effects of the noble moral and ethical ideals that I grew up under. They have been real and precious to me, and even in moments of theological doubt, I could never turn away from them. Even though I have never had an abrupt conversion experience, religion has been real to me and closely knitted to life. In fact, the two cannot be separated. Religion, for me, is life. 
As a mother, Alberta worked diligently to instill a sense of self-respect within her three children. She had very difficult lessons to teach as well. She told me about slavery, Dr. King wrote. She tried to explain the divided system of the South as a social condition rather than a natural order. She made it clear that she opposed the system and that I must never allow it to make me feel inferior. Then she said the words that almost every Negro hears before he can yet understand the injustice that makes them necessary. You are as good as anyone. Any one of us who has ever written home to Mama will smile at this letter that Martin wrote to Alberta. Dear Mother, your letter was received this morning. I often tell the boys around the campus I have the best mother in the world. You will never know how I appreciate the many kind things you and Daddy are doing for me. So far, I have gotten the money, $5 every week. Also, I met a fine chick in Philadelphia who has gone wild over the old boy. Since Barber told the members of his church that my family was rich, the girls are running me down. Of course, I don't ever think about them. I am too busy studying. Mother dear, I want you to send me some fried chickens and rolls. It will not be so much. And also, send my brown shoes. The others have worn out. As we all know, this young man would grow up to become a transformational leader, and his story would end in his tragic death at the hands of a hateful man. Alberta Williams King would suffer that death, and I imagine her mother's broken heart. But a story I had never heard took place six years later. On a Sunday, a man walked into Ebenezer Baptist Church during morning services and killed Alberta King as she played the last notes of the Lord's Prayer on the organ. The killer declared that he shot Mrs. King because, quote, all Christians are his enemies. The killer declared that he shot Mrs. King because all Christians were his enemies. Though the gunman was condemned to death, his sentence was changed to life in prison at the wishes of the King family, who opposed capital punishment. At Alberta King's funeral, she was remembered as a woman who sounded no trumpets to call attention to her greatness. But because of her, the world was changed forever. You've heard the stories of Thomas O'Reilly, Demetrius Petrides, and Alberta Williams King. But I want to assure you that not every saint dies young or tragically. Our fourth and final saint of Atlanta is a remarkable woman named Lila Denmark, who lived to the age of 114 years and 60 days. She was the world's 
oldest practicing pediatrician. She started treating children in 1928 and practiced until her retirement in May 2001 at the age of 103, and only then because her eyesight was failing. After 73 years, Denmark was treating the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of her first patients. Parents reported that Dr. Denmark could often determine exactly what was wrong with a child when they first walked into the office just by looking. Born in Portal, Georgia, a farming community, Lila was the third of 12 children. She was the third woman to graduate from Medical College of Georgia with a medical degree. Three days after the newly minted doctor graduated from medical school, she married John Denmark, and they would have one child. The couple moved to Atlanta, where she began her internship in the segregated black wards of Grady Hospital. As staff physician, she admitted the very first patient to Henrietta Eggleston Pediatric Hospital. When a whooping cough epidemic swept through Atlanta in the 1930s, Dr. Denmark was spurred to research the disease and develop the pertussis vaccine. Lila developed a private practice, seeing patients in a clinic at her home, where she economized with a sign-in sheet instead of a receptionist and charged a flat rate of $10 for the first visit and $8 for all visits thereafter. Denmark volunteered faithfully at the Presbyterian Church Baby Clinic. Her family observed that she did not talk much about her faith, but she certainly lived it. She was quite outspoken in the pediatric community. One of the first doctors to object to smoking cigarettes around children and she believed that drinking cow's milk is harmful. When she first launched her career, there were very few effective medicines for many serious ailments. But even as more drug therapies became available, Dr. Denmark kept the focus on common-sense preventive medicine and old-school parenting techniques. You can find her wisdom in her book, Every Child Should Have a Chance, which Myra, my mother-in-law, gave to me when our child, Henry, was born. In it, she recommends that children should eat fresh fruit rather than drinking fruit juices and drink only water, which was tough for me to hear. Henry loved his juice boxes. But on her 103rd birthday, Dr. Denmark explained that she had not eaten anything with added sugar for 70 years so she must have been right. Lila Denmark said that there were just two secrets, eating right and loving what you do. She was known to say this, anything on earth you want to do is play. Anything on earth you have to do is work. Play will never kill you. Work will. I never worked a day in my life. the mediator, Demetrius, the advocate, Alberta, the educator, Lila, the healer, 
each one of these sinner saints served and lived and loved their neighbors, the people of their community, the people of Atlanta. How are you and I called to live and to love in our own city and in our own time, faithfully and well? Karen Wright Marsh, the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville, here at the University of Virginia. This special podcast episode is part of our new Saints of the City initiative, launching in Atlanta, Washington, and Northern Virginia, Charlottesville, and Dallas, with more cities to come. Saints of the City seeks to provide a warm environment for people from different ages, faith, and cultural backgrounds, an invitation to connect with others and consider one aspect of spiritual truth or practical wisdom as modeled by a saint from the Christian tradition. We'd love to include you. Learn more at theologicalhorizons.org slash saints. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation, and to the friends of Theological Horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections. (music) 